the mistletoe margarita, the Scrooge driver, the North Pole punch. The holidays call for cocktails, so get everything you'll need for them delivered with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. So what's it gonna be? Classics like Bullet Bourbon, Don Julio Reposado, or Kettle One, or maybe something new. Find it all on Drizzly where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered for any holiday festivity. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. How can you hear us? Can you hear us all right? All right, we'll go ahead and get started then. Welcome on the birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. We are here previewing the 2023 MLB playoffs with feature of the Baltimore Orioles, your American League East division champions. We're also going to recap the regular season, recap the minor league season as well. But first, Bob wants to shout out some patrons who are in the room. Yeah, we have Vivek. He's already thinking about this year's Rule 5 draft. We have Keith Shaw, not Keith Mayo, Keith Shaw. And Patrick Seaman, he's looking forward to the next baseball card break in the patron group. A couple of others here as well. Uh, we have Garrett, who is not part of the chat, but is a patron. We also have my parents, who were, I think, the fourth patrons, not the first, but the fourth. So they got in there. Uh, but we're going to start out first by giving out our awards from what was a very good 2023 season in both the major leagues and the minor leagues. And we have a few surprises in the award selection. And all I know is that I put my votes in on Friday. I didn't go back and look until this morning to see who Bob and Nick had voted for. And I was surprised by the way some of our awards went, but we've made great choices all around. And we're going to start with minor league player of the year, which goes to Kobe Mayo. Mayo was an excellent year between AA Bowie and AAA Norfolk, beats out Jackson Holiday. Heston Kerstad, and Samuel Basayo for the award. Now, Nick, you had Kobe Mayo first, as did Bob. So what led you to that decision over Jackson Holiday? I think this is one of the more fun aspects of covering this minor league system because you have the unanimous top prospect in all of baseball, right, in Jackson Holiday. MLB Pipeline Player of the Year, Baseball America Pipeline, or Baseball America Player of the Year, all that good stuff. 19 years old, he finishes the year in AAA. But yet you've got three or four guys at least who are in serious contention for this like award that, that we are presenting here. Like 
Um, this binary system is, saying it's stacked, I think is just an understatement, honestly. And you look at a guy like Kobe Mayo, I went with Mayo over Holiday just because when you take age and level that they achieved what they did in, Holiday had fantastic numbers, right? There's no denying that. But Kobe Mayo is also just 21 years old this year and reached AAA. And I mean, looking at his numbers, the kid put up 45 doubles, 29 home runs, and a 973 OPS across two different levels. This kid finally had his first full healthy year in the minor leagues and he broke out in a major way. I said before the season started that a healthy Kobe Mayo would finally get that breakout that we we're all hoping for. He was healthy, he broke out, and uh, I'm very, very excited to see where the future takes him because the kid, and then in this, the AAA championship and that international, or the, the international league championship series and the AAA championship game in Las Vegas, it seemed like he hit everything the opposite way. In the same spot almost, everything is like, oh, he's evolving even more, uh, which is scary to think about. So that's why I went with Mayo. Yeah, obviously Jackson Holiday, you can't say enough good things about him. I'm sure we'll talk about him more in a little bit, but Kobe Mayo, just a couple years older. He started the year in AA, repeating the level. Just dominated there for a few months, went up to AAA. Took a few weeks to a month to get adjusted and then dominated there. He was four for four with a home run and a double in game three of the international playoffs. I feel like his defense at third base has really improved as well. I think that's underrated development this year. I think he could be competing for a uh, starting position at a spring training next year. We'll see what happens, but uh, just a fantastic season overall for Kobe Mayo and love to see it. We'll go down now to our Pitcher of the Year, and this is the only part of the awards where all three of us had the exact same ballot. Chase McDermott, our unanimous Pitcher of the Year. He was followed in second by Alex Pham and Justin Arnbruster third. If you listen to our show last Monday night, we actually broke this race down a little bit to talk about really the contrast between McDermott and Pham. Both had excellent cases, and in different years, Pham would have been a hands-down winner, but McDermott with a really strong season. And Bob, I don't know what was kind of the tiebreaker for you. For me, I think it's the fact that McDermott went to what was a very hitter-friendly environment in the International League this year and actually improved on what he had done at AA earlier in the year. Yeah, exactly. We saw a lot of pitchers that had success at AA, like Justin Arbrister, a third-place guy. He still had success at AAA considering the level, but McDermott just got better despite you know having to adjust to the automated balls and strikes and the challenge system. I don't know if the International League used the tacky ball, but he just was even better than he was at AA. And, you know, it's unfortunate his season ended with an injury, but hopefully he can recover from that quickly because I think he's got a chance to help the Major League team in 2024. Yeah, I went McDermott just because in terms of like prospect status, if you took that into account, I think Alex Pham wins the award for me because we talked about before, he's a minor league relief prospect from this small school, and now he finished the year in AA and just dominating. He's statistically one of the top pitchers in the organization this year, but McDermott, I mean, just <laughs> unbelievable numbers. We talked to him before the season started, which got me even more excited because he, he understood that he was very open and honest about, I gotta stop walking guys, right? And he did a better job of that this year. I know John Mioli and the crowd here, coming up in a minute, wrote a piece about McDermott early in the year, highlighting a bunch of the minor league pitchers, and the numbers when this kid throws strikes, guys weren't hitting him in double A. They weren't hitting him in triple A when he threw strikes. Uh, and so that continued. It's unfortunate that he, he had the back injury that ended his season early. It would have been nice to see him pitch in the championship series. But yeah, I came into the year thinking McDermott, this fringy, is he a starter? Is he a relief prospect? Is he like a DL Hall type prospect where maybe his future is best in the bullpen? 
I don't know, but after this season, I think he enters spring training, hopefully healthy, one, and, uh, you know, he's probably ticketed for Norfolk to begin the year next year, but he's going to be in camp, worked as, you know, potential starting pitching prospect, or potential starter in the major leagues at some point next year. Yeah, we called him the right-handed DL Hall a few times this season, and he just doesn't give up hard contact, he doesn't give up many hits, it's just a matter of how many guys he's going to walk. But worst case, you have a high leverage arm in the back end of games. Best case, you have a mid, mid, mid rotation starter. Yeah, and it became a lot easier to see McDermott as a possible starter this year. We'll move on now to our manager of coach of the year. And this is really where the ballot was a lot different between the three of us. Uh, the winner of this award has come as a little surprise. Buck Britton, the manager of the Norfolk Tides. Norfolk had an incredible season from start to finish winning not only their first international league title since 1985, they also won the AAA Championship Series. Also receiving votes for this one, Forrest Herman, Bowie pitching coach, Brink Ambler, a hitting coach at Norfolk, Austin Miney, the pitching coach at Aberdeen, as well as Justin Ramsey, the pitching coach at Norfolk. And honestly, there are a lot of names that we left off of this because we only give ourselves three, three people per ballot. But there were a lot of names we left off of here that could have been consideration, but Britain really deserving of the award this year, and I'll go to Nick here for this one. Norfolk had, as I just said, great season from start to finish. They pick up the International League title. They pick up the AAA championship, but it feels like Buck Britton didn't have a lot left to prove coming into this year as a manager in the minor leagues, and yet he managed to outdo himself. He's just like so many other coaches in the minor leagues. Like the players, they've risen up the ranks with the players, and it's so much fun to see them have the success. Um, like you said, you could just pick a name, right? Any, any guy at any level, uh, and they deserve this award. You know, Austin Miney was at Charlotte, or UNC Charlotte, I think they dropped the UNC, I don't know, but he's at Charlotte, a Conference USA school, right? And now he is the high pitching coach, and guys like Alex Pham having a breakout season under his tutelage. Um, you look at Sherman Johnson, we talked about him last week, the double-A hitting coach at Bowie. He, this was his first pro coaching job, uh, and you know, we're getting, it doesn't matter, every time we tweet something about a minor league coach, unsolicited, we get a DM from some player in the organization, guaranteed, every single time, someone will reach out in our DMs like, like, you're absolutely right, A, but you're underestimating him, or you guys nailed it, like, this is, this is what he does, this is how he's, he's made me better, I mean, from Chris Holt down, we get these DMs from these players, unsolicited, and I think it just speaks volumes to kind of uh, what these what these guys do down there in the organization. And it's an unbelievable culture. It's an unbelievable uh, player development system they got going on. Yeah, even like a guy like Tim Dijon, who we'd love to have on the show, become a yearly tradition. Hopefully we get him back. He's always good. It's really hard to tell because who knows what these guys are doing, but whatever they're doing, it's working. And Buck Britton, a guy who... It wouldn't be surprising if he found out he was replacing Freddy Gonzalez as the bench coach next year at the major league level. Um, clearly a way to bridge the gap between all the young talent coming up and, and the major league team help trans, uh, ease that transition, but just an assortment of riches, just like the players, the coaches down there. We'll go now to our last two minor league awards. The platinum glove for the second straight year goes to Joey Ortiz. Ortiz battled some issues this year with injuries, but when he was on the field, displaying his usual excellent glove work at shortstop. Judd Fabian and Dante Williams also picking up votes. Williams making some highlight reel plays for Bowie this year, and Fabian just as steady as they come between Aberdeen and Bowie in center field this year. And then our breakout player of the year. This was an interesting race, but it goes to Samuel Basayo, who came into the year with high expectations, 
managed to exceed just about all of them. Now a consensus top 100 prospect in the game. He is joined in that category by Alex Pham, Luis De Leon, and Billy Cook. So we're going to start here with this, um, Ortiz. And by the way, the train going by right now, you can get a Mark train to Riverdale, Maryland for as little as $8. And I'm going to plug that because someone has to care about Mark. Um, but we'll go uh, start off with Ortiz. Uh, had a concussion issues in spring training, all up and down between AAA and the majors early on in the year. But when he was at AAA, getting consistent playing time, he not only excelled at the plate, but put together more highlight reel defense. Bob, this is your favorite prospect, so I'll, I'll let you start. Yeah, um, I didn't. I wasn't quite sure what to make of Joey Ortiz after the ups and downs of season, but I feel like it was a matter of him being on the 40-man that was easy to bring him up in the spot here and there. I'm still really high on him. I think he, he hits the ball as hard as anyone in the system, even as such a little guy that he is. He still hits the ball like 114 miles per hour in max uh, exit velocity. On the, on the table here and um, obviously he can play shortstop as well as anyone that should translate to second base and third base as well I think uh, I was not certain if he was going to be a trade candidate in the trade deadline into the offseason until Michael Elias made those comments about how he's a starting shortstop in the major leagues and maybe that place could be in Baltimore so still hold out hope that next year is his time to at least get more regular playing time in the major leagues but we know he can play defense. I think he's just got to lift the ball a little bit more, and his offense will be just as good. So I remain hopeful. Yeah, I mean, just look at the play this last couple of days, even in Ortiz, even after you missed all that time, he's playing second base, and he is putting up just the instinct. It's so natural. It's so easy to him. At, no matter what position you put him in, uh, I really hope we get to see him in the major leagues at some point next year, hopefully on a more regular basis. But we know that infield is a, at the major league level is a pretty tough nut to crack, and it's only getting tougher. So Joey Ortiz, regardless, he's going to have a bright uh, major league future. And Basayo, like, for the breakout stuff, Samuel Basayo, we knew he had big power, right? But, like, this is an 18-year-old catching prospect who's, he's a big guy. He's an unbelievably huge human being. And at the same time, you're like, what is he going to be able to do offensively? <laughs> How long is this train? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Um, but you're like, all right, what is he really going to do offensively this year? We figured, what, he probably end the year in Aberdeen? He ended the year in Bowie. Uh, and on the season, he had a 953 OPS on the season. He hit over 300. He had, almost, he had over 50 extra base hits. This catcher, this catching prospect, had seven triples and 12 stolen bases. This mammoth human being man-child down there in the lower levels of the minor leagues, stealing bases and hitting triples. Uh, that was unbelievable to see. I, I think this is a guy who, you know, in the next two years or so, this is a guy who, you know, can be Adley's backup. He can be the first baseman. He can be the DH. This is a guy with a very bright major league future, and I, I think he's wonderfully deserving of, like, the big-time breakout prospect. Yeah, that train you heard, that was Sammy Pisayo on his way to the major leagues. He's just, you can't stop him. Uh, someone we had on our show... Uh, about 10 months ago predicted that uh, he would be a top five prospect in the system this time next year and congratulations John Mioli on your prediction <laughs> but uh, yeah Basayo is, is something else I feel like Jackson Holiday is just holding down that that patented number one prospect in baseball spot that the Orioles have had for the past three years and Basayo could be that next guy his upside is that high um, just got better as the year went on and I think the way you can tell an elite prospect from just a very good prospect is the ability to just develop during a season 
and continue those that progress as the season goes on and hold on to it and as you move up levels. So Samuel Pasayo, uh, welcome to big name prospect status. We'll move on now to our Major League Awards. And for the first time we're at our season ending, so we are going to give out Major League Awards, which we feel is fitting, giving the year that the Orioles have had. I will run through those now. The unanimous MVP, shouldn't come as any surprise, Gunnar Henderson, Adley Rutzman, Kyle Bradis, and Felix Bautista also pick up votes. Bradis, however, does walk away with Pitcher of the Year. Again, unanimous selection. Felix Bautista, Grayson Rodriguez, and Kyle Gibson also picking up votes. For Platinum Gloves, Cedric Mullins is our winner. Excellent glove work in center field, as usual. Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg, and Adley Rutzman also recognized with votes. Meanwhile, for Orioles breakout, Yenier Cano, the all-star that came out of nowhere, comes in and wins Orioles breakout for us. The only other player in that category to get a vote for first place was Kyle Bradis. Ryan O'Hearn and Austin Hayes, meanwhile, also pick up votes, as does Felix Bautista. So, great season in the major leagues. Orioles win 101 games. I think it's really reflected well with this group. If I could shout out one more patron that's here, Justin Daly. Ryan O'Hearn made me uh, remember that he's here since he thinks he should be MBO. Yeah, I don't even think, like, Gunnar Henderson, man. I, I went to one game this year, and it was the Saturday game in the Mets series. Uh, you know, I live, I drove two and a half hours to, to come to this show uh, because, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the Virginia kid. Um, but, so between, you know, COVID, having two kids, and it was just coming up to Camden Yards, making this drive was, was a lot. And I got to come to one game, and they won that game against the Mets. And Gunnar Henderson hit a home run, and I, I left the ballpark thinking, like, I just watched Gunnar Henderson. The last time I was at Camden Yards, he was being introduced to the crowd in 2019. They played the Padres, Manny Machado coming back, um, cheer or boo, whatever you want to do. Um, but he made his return to Camden Yards. That was my, like, my wife was like, go out, have fun, enjoy it, because life's about to get chaotic. And I watched the Padres come into town. Um, the Dark Ages, when I would go to Camden Yards to watch the other team that was in town. And now it's, it feels really good to go to Camden Yards and watch the Orioles uh, succeed. But yeah, and I remember like Gunner was being introduced. And now I left that ballpark thinking, like, this team is in first place. They are charging very quickly towards the playoff, the number one overall seed. And I just watched Gunnar Henderson hit a home run in an Orioles uniform now for the first time. And that was where that moment where I'm like, this is, this is something different. This is awesome. This is special. I mean, he was almost a five-war player on fan graphs, and that is that borderline of uh, all-star and superstar, uh, according to their chart. And I think that's very accurate. He is borderline, what, 21, 22-year-old superstar in the major leagues in just his first season here. It's unbelievable. Yeah, if you take out that first month, I think he batted like 285 for the season on his way to a runaway rookie of the year campaign. The Orioles are going to have three first round picks this year uh, in the 2024 draft. Vivek, I know you're excited about that. But uh, yeah, easy pick for me. I shouldn't say very easy because Kyle Bradish and, and Adley Rushman, of course, are right there. Anthony Santander, Kyle Bradish. There's a, a really solid group at the top. But just for me, Gunnar Henderson, especially if you consider it's his first full season in the major leagues, I, I felt like he just took this team on his back in the second half of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that he made strides on both sides of the ball this year was something that really jumped out at me because early in the season, yeah, he had the issue where he was sometimes too patient at the plate. And then in the field, the throwing was a real issue. And that was something we had noticed back in 2021. 2022, it seemed to have corrected itself. Then comes back a little bit at the beginning of this year. But by the end of the season, not only was he a great hitter, but he's someone that if defensively, 
he had played the way he did from June 1st on, I think it would be a shoe in to be a Gold Glove finalist. I, I'm really excited to see what he can do. Now, I do want to move down here to Cano, uh, because this was not a season I think anybody saw coming. He was not even on the opening day roster. He comes up, ends up being named an All-Star, and had the really, really got the load of trying to replace Felix Bautista, which you can't replace Felix Bautista. But Cano stepped in when the Orioles needed to and did a good job. Yeah, he appeared in 71 games this year, and he didn't make his major league debut for the season until, what, mid to late April. So they really used and abused him. And it's almost like you kind of forget how good he was when he first came up just because he wasn't striking out as many, and he quote-unquote struggled uh, after that really hot start. But he still finished the year with like a, an ERA around two and was very reliable in the late innings. So, you know, Connor, Connor Newcomb, not a fan of the... Trade that got Yannick Cano in the system, still not, but it was a, it, the results uh, were pretty good, even yesterday. And Alex, shout out to uh, Vivek again there, because I know Vivek was a guy who was high on Cano as well coming into. You know, he came with the major leagues last year and he really struggled, right? And then you watch him though in Norfolk, and it was like if he could just throw strikes, if he could just keep doing this. He's going to be something, and then like no one else is like, no, this guy's terrible. He can't do it. He had an ERA of what, like twelve last year in the major leagues, and I, I still sat there and watched these Norfolk Tides games every single night because I, at that point, I'm like, this guy can do it. But God forbid I tweet anything about it uh, that he's going to be successful. And this year he did. It was awesome. And you thought he was going to fall apart at one point this year. I mean, even the mass and broadcast being like, you know looking at the fatigue setting in and everything. And it seemed like a week or two after that, he found a second year. Uh, and he ended the year extremely strong. Um, yeah, just an unbelievable find. You call him the throw-in of a trade, whatever you want to call him. He's on this roster, and it was an unbelievable, another example of the player development process standing out. And just the player development process isn't just about minor leaguers, right? Once they get to the major leagues, these guys are developing as well. And this organization is doing a fantastic job of finding these types of guys. And another reason they're not going to spend money this offseason because they, they think they can do this on regularity. So we'll see what happens. That's a whole other podcast. Bob, Bob, are you trying to start the fireworks early here? I thought we could at least get through the playoffs before we had to get into the anxiety over people getting mad at Mike Elias for something he hasn't done yet. I thought we could wait a little bit. We have five days of no baseball to watch, so why not? All right, well, with that, we're going to uh, very quickly introduce our guests for tonight. You're going to be hearing them here over the... Uh, next uh, rest of the segments from uh, Locked On Orioles, the host, a good friend of the show, Connor Newcomb. From the Baltimore Banner, Andy Koska and Danielle Allentuck. Also from the Baltimore Banner, John Mioli. But first, we want to welcome up uh, someone who is really instrumental in helping to make this show happen. He is the tap room manager at Secret Spot Brewing here at 1421 Ridgely Street in Baltimore, Dennis Nass. So Dennis, great to have you on here. Um, I know you're a big Orioles fan. How are you feeling after this season? Oh, I'm so excited I can't stand. It's like the craziest transition from worst to first. It's like in a two-year run, I would never imagine this would be possible. It's like when you talk about doing this podcast, you're like, oh, but we got to do this. <laughs> we have reasons to celebrate. Like winning the L East was like a pipe dream like two years ago. 
Yeah, absolutely. You told me a story before the show. You you called this. I did. Uh, I called them being a 500 team last year only because it pretty much, like I said, it was like either play here and produce or you go to the minors. That's it. Your career could be done. I felt like there was some chemistry that Adley's never lost. I feel like that's a big catalyst. Like having somebody that's an internal cheerleader makes any baseball team that much better. You look at the, I mean, as much as I can't stand the Yankees, Derek Jeter was a cheerleader. Guys who suck played great with him. I think Abby's the same kind of charismatic guy. That's a game changer for us. Yeah, absolutely. Now your uh, new tap room only been open about a month or so uh, down here at 1421 Ridgely Street, not far from Camden Yards. Uh, how, how is the new space working out? Fantastic. Yesterday we had a massive crowd before the game, even the game didn't mean anything. It was great. Uh, I gotta say, watching the transition over the last few years, we used to get all tourist baseball fans, now it's all orange and black, so it's a lot more fun. Like, for us, we were fortunate enough to host the Orioles as a guest bartenders back in February. That's right. And that really got us fired up about the season, and to see them do so well, it's been fantastic. Now, I should mention, there is a nice synergy down here now, because you're not the only brewery in town. Uh, and there's a lot of enthusiasm for the Orioles and the Ravens among this group of breweries. How are you feeling that uh, with fans coming in? It's been fantastic. Yesterday we did an event. We had a hot dog race for what we're going to do every year for the end of uh, baseball season. That's the Orioles home game. By the way, checker spot one. We were relished. We, didn't, we had to draw out of a hat. We won the inaugural. But uh, the South Baltimore Brewery District is something that we put together with three other breweries. No ideas to create sort of an activity. We're not direct competitors, we're all trying to rise together. You know, we're not Budweiser, we're looking to make sure that the small guys thrive. So it's been a lot of fun planning some events. So definitely watch out for social media. There's a lot of things coming up in the future. So what can fans who are coming into the area uh, for the playoffs, looking for a pre and or post game destination expect from second spot? We have plenty of space and lots of cold beer. <laughs> It'll all be cold. That checks out. Well, absolutely. Dennis, thank you so much for coming on tonight, and thank you for your help in making this event possible. My pleasure. Anytime you guys want, you're welcome to stop back by. Awesome. Pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much. Dennis Nash. Now, we will go to our next guest, both from the Baltimore Banner. Uh, he is pre previously with the Baltimore Sun. This was his first season with the Banner, and this is now his fourth appearance on On the Birds. He is also still the only guest to join us live from a press box in the middle of the game, Andy Koska, making her first appearance on On the Birds. Also a reporter for the Baltimore Banner, Danielle Allentuck. So we'll have to pass around the microphones here to make this work. Um, but Danielle, Andy, uh, this was quite a season, and I don't think one that a lot of people saw coming uh, going into this year. It, the hope was maybe, you know, improve a little bit from the 83 wins in 2022, but to make that 18-game jump in the AL East uh, seemingly came out of nowhere. Yeah, I would say uh, I was surprised, but uh, it also wasn't out of the realm of possibility. Obviously, it happened, so it's definitely in the realm, but they had so much promise that you didn't know if it was going to work out or not. Um, you know, the Yanni Erkano, I don't think many people thought was possible. I, I did want to add like a tidbit on him. Please. The O's were the first team to offer him a contract internationally and he ended up signing for Minnesota uh, because they offered more money. But it's, it's kind of funny how the O's saw him way back when in 2018 or whatever when he was coming over from Cuba uh, and they 
kind of had an idea that, hey, this is a guy that you know, could do really well. It was Kobe Perez and I guess 2019 offered the contract when Kobe Perez first came over. Uh, so yeah, I mean, they, they hit gold on that trade. Um, there's a lot of guys that um, you didn't know necessarily that Ryan O'Hearn was going to be a 290 hitter. Um, so it's, yeah, a lot of things worked out really well. And I think uh, it's probably the, the start of a window rather than uh, the end of it. Yeah, I mean, I was a little bit different. I started this year in Colorado covering the Rockies, who went on to lose 101 games. So watching this team from afar until June when I moved here, I was kind of like, hey, they could be a wild card team. They kind of have that chemistry going, but I don't think I really understood it until I got here and saw it in person. And you just sort of know, as cliche as it is, like a team can be good. And I just realized that from the team from the beginning, just having covered such a bad team across the country, that you just know the difference right away. Was there a particular moment for either of you, uh, a game, uh, an interview you did, a series where you were like, this is it. Like, this is the moment where I, I realized that there's something special here and I'm going to be working uh, for a little bit longer this year. <laughs> in New York, the 4th of July series against the Yankees, uh, they had gone and killed in the first two games. And then Gunnar Henderson, I think it was the third game, had four hits in the first four innings. And I was like, this kid's legit. This team's legit. And they came back and I think they won like four straight for the All-Star break or something like that. And just the ability to come back from such a bad start to the series to still end up with series split, which is where I really understood how good they were. I would I would go back a little even even farther um, to Atlanta. Um, there you are against the best team in the National League and you lose two of three, but the way they lost, I think at that point I didn't necessarily know how good the team was going to be, and then you play at Truist Park, and you know I was down there, and it felt like playoff atmosphere for three straight games, and it was such competitive baseball and back and forth, and you know it just was, you know, I, I think I think everyone was a one run one run game, so. even yeah. all three of them, or you know, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but uh, it just I think Atlanta was when I thought, okay, they can hang with the big boys and. It would be one of those big boys themselves. So that, that's kind of when I realized, like, okay, this is going to be good, which is very early in the season. Yeah, and similar against the Dodgers. What, they got blown out in that first game, and then they just came right back, and, and what they won, at least the next game, I can't remember if they won the next two. But how important is this vaunted uh, non-sweep streak? Uh, what is it, 92 series in a row since Adley came up? They haven't been swept. So, like, is that just consistency of – it win at least one game in every series. Is that key to how they got to 100 wins? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, mathematically, yes. Um, Makes but, sense. <laughs> but it's also just uh, there's an. I think it's, it's no coincidence that it started with Adley Rushman coming up. Um, I think somebody said earlier he's a winner, um, and it's it's true. Uh, he holds everybody to a higher standard. Um, his example is you know his quiet quiet leader. I'd say. Um, in the clubhouse, he's not the most outspoken guy, at least when the media's in there. Uh, definitely when the media's in there. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, you can see him when he comes off the field, you know, how he lifts off his pitchers. You know, he, it doesn't, doesn't matter who it is uh, that hits a home run. He's one of the first guys there celebrating with him. He's a cheerleader, I think, one of you mentioned as well. I mean, he, he's a big presence on this team, and it's, it's very helpful when your star player is also such a great clubhouse guy. Uh, that is a special thing, and not everyone has that. Um, so yeah, I think they, they go hand in hand, the fact that they haven't been swept in that long. And I think it's, it's a yeah, I mean, testament to uh, a good, honestly, most 
World Series teams have long losing streaks at some point in the season. Yeah, right. And the fact that the O's have not lost more than four games this year is, is quite astounding. Yeah. So, I mean, not saying that they're going to win the World Series, but it you is. Heard it here. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first, if, if it does happen. But, uh, you know, it is impressive nonetheless. I think it's impressive, but I don't. I don't think it matters. For me, honest, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just a streak. Um, I think just would, a streak. I think, <laughs> oh man. Never <laughs> <laughs> kind of streak. I think they would still be in this position. I. I think it's impressive that they, you know, were able to make adjustments. That they lost the first two games, they could come back, but nobody cares. Really. Yeah. I don't yeah. think any of them really care. Fair. Yeah, all offseason, <laughs> we were hearing fans clamor for the Orioles to go out and get the top of the rotation arm. That didn't happen in the offseason, didn't happen to trade deadline. Yet Kyle Braddis not only took it to the next level, but we're talking about someone who's going to get considerable down-ballot Cy Young votes this year, most likely. And for the two of you, was there a particular point where you realized that Braddis had maybe made that big stride to now being a guy that is a very good number one starter for a playoff team? I think that's what's been so impressive about him, that there hasn't been a moment. He has been a consistent guy all season. You know, he's had his really good starts. He's had only really a couple bad starts, but he's just been so consistent all year where I was like, that's what you want from your number one starter. It's a guy you just know, you look, okay, Kyle's starting, he's going to go six, seven, and eight, it'll all be okay. And that's what he is. Yeah, I have a Cy Young vote this year, and he's going sure. to be on that ballot somewhere. Uh, he... Yeah. Uh, he has uh, been incredibly consistent. I actually go back to last year when he returned from the injured list. It seemed like a different pitcher. And you know, it kind of reminds me of this off topic, but like Grayson Rodriguez when he came back from the minor leagues, different pitcher. I, I think there was just a little bit of a reset last year for him when he was out for a month. Comes back, he has a great final third, whatever the, you know, however long it was. Uh, this year he's been, he's been the ace. Which has, you know, been very impressive to see him develop even even more. I don't know if I expected uh, this high from him, but yeah, he's he's proven that he can kind of be that big time arm and probably gets the ball game one. The Orioles, if you could, I feel like a big part of the reason for the non-sweep streak even is just who can you even say was like a huge disappointment this year, right? Even Ryan O'Hearn, you you signed him and he comes up and he bats 300 most of the year with power. Is that a fluke, or do do uh, like Michael I said, uh, they know more than back in the baseball cards. That's like, uh, are they getting more out of those types of guys, Ryder Hearns of the world, the, whoever, the waiver claim relievers? Like, are they getting more out of them than other clubs would, or is it just a little bit of a good luck as well as you know doing a good job? Um, luck is definitely involved, uh, without a doubt. Uh, but with O'Hearn, I think. You know, I was talking to him, I wrote a, wrote a story about his kind of like acceptance of that baseball could be over for him after KC. Um, I think he came in with this open mind of like, hey, whatever Brian Fuller, Matt Borgschulte, Cody Ashley, whatever they say, uh, I'm gonna listen to it and see what happens. And suddenly, you know, this happens. <laughs> so it, it, I, I think there is definitely a case for good player development um, at the major league level with these waiver claims. But also, I mean, definitely you've seen it at the minor league level. You know, you guys have way more than I have of, of you know, minor league guys being really good. So I think there's, luck plays a role in everything in baseball. Um, it will play a large role in October, but I think it's, it's pretty, 
uh, without a doubt, there can be a lot of credit to the, the, the hitting staff as well. Follow-up for both of you, is Ryan or her back in 2024? <laughs> I don't see why not. Yeah, he, he'll still be in arbitration, yeah. um, which, which keeps his contract relatively inexpensive. He's made 1.3 million this year. Probably goes up to 3 million. Um, I think, yeah, why not resign? Okay. Yeah. Left-handed bat, first baseman, great. Yeah. Million is a little cheaper than a free agent. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you know, they want the yeah. cheap option. So. Yeah, I, three million is Daniel's <laughs> cheaper than a free agent. So I think it could be that. Right. Yes. Um, Gunnar Henderson was just voted MBO, uh, and deservedly so, right? But you guys have been in the clubhouse every day. You talk to these guys. You see the behind the scenes stuff that fans don't see. Uh, is there a guy in the clubhouse that, you know, and you both are well connected to, you know, Orioles social media conversations are about guys. And so, is there a guy in that clubhouse where you say hey, the most underrated Oriole, if that wasn't an award, like if, you, if fans knew what they did behind the scenes or what their impact was in that clubhouse, perceptions would change of that player maybe? Or they just don't get enough credit you know, from you know, the national perspective? You have an answer already? Yeah. I was going to go Urban. Okay, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that yeah. dude, his pitching-wise has barely made an impact on his team. He's eating up innings. But he's just an incredible guy. Uh, he's trying to get them a dog. Like, oh, that is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, supports all the guys. He knows everything about their families. Everything's about them. You always see him in the clubhouse, which is so rare nowadays. Like, we come into the clubhouse and everybody else scatters. It's like, <laughs> they're scared of us. But, or, or don't want to talk to us more like it. So but, <laughs> but Cole is always there. He's always willing to talk. He's just a good guy. That's and awesome. I think that he's made more of an impact in the clubhouse than he has in the well, yeah, that's a great answer. Cole is a great, yeah, great guy, phenomenal with, he's a media member's dream, uh, truly. Uh, I was going to say, my, my answer initially, which I agree with Cole Urban 100%, uh, but Danny Kulo, and I think fans do realize how, how great he is, but just as a clubhouse guy too, has, has been superb, and, and I always find it hilarious how this is the guy that they got on the last day of spring training, as, as a tr nothing trade, trade for cash, and here he is. You know, pitching seventh, eighth innings, you know, as a great left-handed matchup guy, but also can get right-handers out, and that's you know absolutely necessary when you have a three-batter minimum. It's you're not a lefty specialist anymore. If you're a lefty, you've got to get right-handers out, and um, he's been he's been great at, at both sides of the plate, and definitely great clubhouse guy. I mean, there's nobody that has been more welcoming to Shintaro Fujinami than Danny Gulo. Um, you know, he he had experience. Uh, with a Japanese teammate in, in Minnesota before, so knew some you know Japanese words already, but has learned multiple words. Most of them can't be said on air. Uh, <laughs> you, know, so, well, you know, that's their favorite thing is they swap a, they swap a curse word usually every yeah, day, yeah. Uh, which is a, a hilarious thing. So yeah, Danny Coulomb on top of what he's done for the pitching staff, Cooler with great you know great choice as well for, for, for sure. vibes guy plus you know clubhouse. You know, dad, basically, uh, with Kyle Gibson, but uh, yeah, Danny Coulomb is, is another one. Yeah, pro I don't typically love the mic'd up games, but when Coulomb was mic'd up, that was that was pretty great. You're, you know, the two of you are in the clubhouse pretty much every day. You get to see Brandon Hyde, the, the leadership that he has on this team, and he's doing something that very few managers get a chance to do, which is start at the very bottom of a rebuild and then take that team to the playoffs. On a day-to-day -day basis, how has his leadership helped this team? Well, I'm writing this story that I'm scooping myself by telling you this, so you're welcome. Uh, I'm writing this story talking to you know, 
Orioles players that experienced the rebuild experience Grand Hyde early. And Stevie Wilkerson is one of those guys, and, and he talked about how, um, you know, when Brandon first showed up, it was immediate. Like, the expectation was fundamental baseball. It was play hard for each other. You guys are a brotherhood. He instilled all this. They might have lost 100 games in 2019, but it started the culture that has really made the 2023, 2023 team great in 2019. And obviously it didn't, didn't turn to wins in 2019, but it started in, in the fact of like, hey, you're going to pick each other up. You're going to play strong defense. You're, you're going to move the guy over, you know, if, even if you get out. Like, you get, get the guy to third with less than two outs. You know, those are the things that Brandon loves in baseball, and, and he started teaching that so early, and I think that has not been lost on any of these guys. And, you know, it carries over with, you know, Hayes, Mullins, you know, the guys that kind of experienced the lows, they have experienced it and helped help this team understand that, uh, you know, they're definitely leaders in the clubhouse too. So it's not just Brandon High, but yeah. it definitely stems a lot from, from what Brandon has done. I also think the thing that I've noticed here that I haven't noticed with two other teams that I've covered is he delegates. Yeah. You don't see him on the field taking rounders or helping the pitchers. He knows where his expertise is and he's willing to bring in and let those other coaches do what they're best at. And I think that's been a big reason why this team has developed so well is he's not trying to control everything like I saw other managers do in other markets. Colorado. And New York. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to say, for Danielle specifically, you've covered other teams. What is it about, is, is there something about this organization you know, in the clubhouse, the way they do something? Maybe it is, the, you know, like that Brandon Hyde example. Is there something about this organization that's just, it stands out to you and, and what makes this Orioles clubhouse organization special, speci specifically this year? We're talking clubhouse, the players actually like each other, which makes a big difference. Um, you don't see the veterans kind of being the veteran douche to the younger players. Um, you see the veterans let the younger players stand up, let them talk for themselves, um, they let them take accountability for their actions. Um, I feel like, especially in Colorado, they have two veterans who would, you know, they would be the ones who have to talk every single time and they would take responsibility for everything else, which I think kind of weighed a lot on them and put a lot more pressure on them, but this is an actual team. Um, looking developmental-wise, they're not just out there like saying things that they're doing, they're actually doing these things. I mean, they have the track record there. Um, they kind of admit that they're not willing to spend money and they follow through on that, which is fine because they get better in other ways. But uh, particularly in Colorado, they would spend money and then say that they're a draft and develop team and not be able to draft and develop. So, I think there's a lot of combination of things that have gone right, and I think that they got lucky that these players like each other. I don't think that's natural. Um, we've all been on teams and in offices, I'm sure, where we don't like our coworkers. I am. <laughs> but they just—it's a good vibe, and I think that helps a lot. Do you think that vibe, that atmosphere, also is gonna help some of these younger guys come into their own, like just feel confident in themselves, like moving forward in the next couple seasons? young player comes up and he does a scrum in the media and they feel like they've been there forever. Like they are just comfortable the second they get up. I think part of that is the vibe. I think part of that is the older players at Coulomb when D.L. Hall came up, gave him a pep talk before he talked to us and D.L. Hall was very calm. Then when it was his turn to talk to the media, I also think, you know, these players all came up together. So there's no strangers anymore really. Well, I'm more excited for this organization than I think I could be. Um, I, I just have one more question about you know, looking ahead to this playoff series. Do you guys, either of you see any surprises with this playoff roster? And specifically, what do you think 
the role for a guy like John Means is going to be coming into the playoffs? Uh, starting with surprises, um, I wouldn't be shocked to see Heston Kirstein not on the, roster, the playoff roster. Um, I think they might give more weight to Orion McKenna defensively, which of course means that it's going to be completely inverse. Heston Kirstein is going to be on the roster. Ah, Danielle corrected me, which is what she always does. Don't worry. Uh, they had to cut yeah two guys because they go down to twenty six man again. Yeah, so one of them is not going to be on the roster. But I would I would figure that yeah. defensively uh, they're going to give more preference to the defensive instead of an offensive guy that has not been on the bench or not really been in the starting lineup. So Heston has shown the power, but I don't think it's going to be on the playoff roster. Uh, which of course everything can change in an instant. Um, John Means, uh, I think, is a huge boost. Um, I think he could be a starter in that playoff rotation. You know, if, if you want to go with four guys, probably for a, a playoff rotation, uh, you probably have, you know, um, Radish, Grayson, Rodriguez. Jack Flaherty. Skip that one. Uh, and then uh, uh, Dean Kramer and John Means, probably. And Gibson knows how to fish out of a pen in a playoff series before. He's like, did it last year, so I think that's probably the way that it sets up. But John has come back great, so he probably is going to be a big boost. I mean, I don't think Heston makes it because they don't trust him to do anything but hit. I mean, they don't trust that's him to build, they don't trust him to run the bases. They didn't really give him, I think, you know, enough time to show he could. I mean, I don't know if he can. I haven't seen him play personally that much, but he's not making it. McKenna's probably taxi squad, I would say. Essence probably taxi squad too. Yeah. Um, I have John Means as my number three starter because he is the freshest arm right now. I mean, obviously, having Tommy John is not ideal, but he's pitched way less innings than anybody else. He has proved he can do it in his last couple starts. Uh, he says breaking balls not even where he wants it to be yet, so maybe we haven't even seen anywhere close to his best stuff yet. Um, I think, and you have to cut off one more pitcher. I mean, it could be Cole, his last one called up. I would not be shocked at his Jack Flaherty. They don't need another long guy, though. Sure. Well, can, can you trust Fujinami in a, in a high level situation? Depends on the day. Well, that's the thing. It always depends on the day. Well, I think that you just give him a short leash. You take him out as soon as he starts to I mean, I, I, I would Like, I agree. I think Fujinami is on the playoff pressure. I'm playing devil's advocate here. I'm just... I, I think it just that is one of the players that could be left off pitching wise is Fujinami because like I would press box. I would this, this is basically us. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think and I, I'm a big I've written a lot about Fujinami like obviously great guy. Um, I just don't know if he can be trusted to throw enough strikes to be in a high leverage situation. I think you can. There, there you go. There you go. Any like shocks like Joey Ortiz over Ramon Urias or I mean that's just a random example, but any shocks of like out of nowhere things? Do you think pretty much the team that got him here is the team they're going to run with? I think we've got some shocks on the taxi squad. I think we'll yeah. see a couple prospects just come up and see like a major league postseason for the first time. Um, but the taxi squad doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we'll see Jackson Holiday maybe on the taxi squad. There's a potential. I mean, I've just like. They wanted him in the major league spring training for as long as possible when he was, you know, first his first spring yeah. training. Uh, why not have him around for his first, uh, you know, big league postseason? Even though that, and honestly, he could be, like, you know, heaven forbid that like Henderson gets injured. Yeah, he could be, you know, in that mix to to be, you know, Joey Ortiz. Obviously, would probably be ahead of him, but 
you, know, you could be a candidate for, and there's an open 40 man spot. So I'm not saying anything, but you know, there's an open 40 man spot. You could have Jackson Holiday. Um, we'll wrap up here. The Orioles have a long way off, which is either going to be credited with them winning the series or blamed on the fact that they lose the series. Inevitable. Now, with that said, what do the two of you think happens next weekend when the Orioles start the ALDS and what happens in the postseason with the Orioles? Okay, I mean, my personal opinion is that if they're going to lose, lose early. Um, I don't think that, I think they're either going to lose in the ALDS or they're going to go all the way. I don't think there's an in-between. Um, I think obviously it depends on who they're going to play. I think if it's Texas, they'll get through easily. If it's Tampa Bay, they'll still get through, but probably five games. Yeah, I think uh, the weaknesses for Tampa and Texas are there with Tampa's um, lineup has a lot of injuries right now. Uh, Texas' starting pitching staff especially has a lot of injuries. But, you know, the Scherzer un you know, probably unavailable. I think they just added another, was it uh, John Gray just went on the injured list. So that's a, that's a blow. Pretty sure it did. Somebody in the crowd, John Gray. Yeah, 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 he got me there. John Gray, one of the injured injured lists. Thank you, Connor Newcomb. One of the best players. Uh, yeah. So you know, there, there's there's weaknesses both places. I think to get through the AODS, uh, ALCS is going to be a lot more challenging. Uh, you have a team like possibly Houston um, that you know is going to be a close series, and uh, it's going to be a toss up. But yeah, we don't know. That's the great thing about you baseball. Don't. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Danielle and Andy, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And check out their excellent work over at the Baltimore Banner. The Baltimore Banner has a lot of good sports coverage, not just Orioles, but the Orioles coverage is particularly great. Danielle Allen, Tuck, and Andy Costco. Thank you guys. We'll go down to our next guest. He is the host of Locked On Orioles, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Please welcome Connor Newcomb. Taller than you think. Yeah. Uh, hey, Connor, I should add this. You were the last voice of the Hager Sound Suns, right? That is true, yeah. But they might be coming back. Yeah. The stadium potentially being built. Some talks of a new team in Hagerstown. Yeah. I hate minor league contraction, but that stadium needed to go. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, was this before or after you had to climb? The spiral staircase to the press box. Oh, every that day. thing was terrifying. Every day, up a spiral staircase, the press box was unsafe. Um, trains back. Yeah, trains back. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a Hagerstown Suns hype train coming back. <laughs> so let's start off with this. Um, I think this season exceeded a lot of expectations. Was there a point where you realized the Orioles were the real deal? I mean, I think the first moment, honestly, was that series in Atlanta where, I mean, that Braves team is ridiculous. That lineup one through nine is like nothing I've ever seen. And the fact that the Orioles were four outs away from sweeping the Braves in Atlanta, yes, it was May and, you know, you never know what was going to happen after that. But that's when I thought, okay, this team could at least make the postseason. Like, I thought this team might have the stuff to do it. And then when they were, you know, right basically right below Tampa in second place. They went to Tampa in June or July, whenever it was, and took three of four in Tampa, took the division lead, had the comeback win on Sunday, you know, against Fairbanks and, and, and took down Glass now. I just thought like, this is gonna be their best competition in the division, they just took three of four. And at that point I was like, this, this team could win the East, like nothing's stopping them at this point. 
I know you have an ongoing thread of your favorite games of the year, right? So what would you say now the season's over is your absolute favorite? For me, it's the Tampa Bay comeback in 11 innings or whatever it was, but what do you think? Yeah, the Sunday against Tampa, I mean, that was, yeah. to, to clinch the playoffs, to see the celebration was unbelievable. Um, I was there the night before, which was great. I mean, the division clinching game was awesome. That game was not memorable at all. Like, yeah. nothing really <laughs> happened. Yeah in that game that was super memorable. I mean, even though they shut him out, I mean, Kramer only went five and a third, so it's not like you're remembering a great pitching performance. Alex Verdugo did, like, make a jumping catch at barely at the yeah, winning yeah, track. There you but. Yeah, uh, Heston had a big, I mean, that's a moment he's always going to remember. Um, but obviously that Tampa game was incredible. I mean, there's so many games to, to think back on, so many comebacks to think back on. I mean, you can't not talk about the Seattle game on the Sunday, the Cedric Mullins game. I mean, that was unbelievable. It's still unbelievable that you rob a homer to save a game and Mike Bauman gives up a homer on the very next <laughs> pitch. Um, but what Mullins did in that game, and, and let's be honest, when Mullins has come back from the second injury, he has not been very good. Like, he is probably gonna see him hit seven, eight, nine in the playoff order because he just hasn't been good, except for the big moments, except for in Seattle, except for the ninth inning of Houston, except for the walk-off against Tampa. Kind of every moment involves Cedric Mullins, which kind of tells me that if we see a big postseason moment, it might be Cedric Mullins. And he came into that game in like the eighth inning, right? Like yeah. He didn't even start. Yeah, he's, he's doing things when he's coming off the bench. He's sitting against a lefty. He's ready to go. What part of this roster, I mean, not to get negative here, because the vibes are supposed to be good because it's the playoffs, but what, what I've about... I've never been negative, Nick. Come on. <laughs> no, never once. <laughs> what about... You're, you're a realist. That, that's all it is. Um, what about this roster concerned you going into the playoffs? Is there a certain position group or just what, what about this roster going into the playoffs kind of scares you just a little bit about if, if the Orioles do lose, maybe it's early on, maybe it's later, but what do you think could potentially hold them back? Yeah, I mean, this is like a little bit of narrative ball, and I had the guys from Cespedes Family Barbecue, Jake and Jordan, on my podcast a couple of weeks Great ago, episode. and we talked about this. Like, there's not a lot of stats to back this up. But a classic narrative is the team that's never been there before, are you worried about what they're going to do in the postseason? The Orioles on the roster right now have six players who have ever played in the postseason. And there's a chance they have less than that on the playoff roster. Yeah. Like Danielle talked about, Jack Flaherty might not make the roster. There goes one of them. Like there's Jacob Webb's probably on the roster, but you never know. Yeah. He's a guy with playoff experience. I mean, you know, you count James McCann. He's your backup catcher. He's got seven playoff play appearances. So, like, you're really looking at Jack Flaherty, who might not be there, and Aaron Hicks as the guys who have ever played truly, like, in a postseason run. Does that worry me? No, because the Orioles have shown us all year that they do not care. Like, it doesn't phase them. It's not that they're playing with house money. They just don't know any better at this point. Like Sometimes just, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, ignorance has been bliss for this young team, but... That, along with like the rest versus rust thing that, that Zach talked about, a big narrative that they go out the ALDS is going to be, well, they've never done it before, next year is going to be the year. Well, they've never done this before, and they won 101 games. And when their backs were against the wall, they took down Tampa in back-to-back -back games. And when their backs were against the wall, they won five in a row to just walk to the division title. So, yeah, things are ratcheted up in the playoffs, but if you think about it, they're probably going to play Tampa. They've seen that team 13 times this year. They saw that team 19 times last year. They know what they're getting from the Rays, and that's one thing that worries me, I guess, a little bit, you know, outside of, you know, not having Felix, but I think they can overcome that. So that kind of brings me to the question I had in mind here, which is, when you look at the American League side, the playoffs, 
what opponent scares you the most and which one scares you the least? Give me the Blue Jays and the ALCS, please. We will wax the floor with Toronto and the ALCS. That team has no idea how to beat the Orioles. I mean, yeah, like nobody record that and post that. Because when, <laughs> when they beat us in five in the CS, I'll have everybody from North the border like not being nice for the first time. Um, but 10 and three against Toronto, like I want to see that team. And to be honest, I, I kind of wanted to see Toronto and Tampa in that wild card series because I feel like the Orioles are combined 18 and eight against those two teams this year. Like if your scenario is you're playing one of those two teams that you've seen a million times, either a Toronto team you've dominated or a Tampa team that, I mean, soon they're gonna call me to come play shortstop. Like they're just running out of players at this point. That's a good spot. Now, does Texas have any pitchers? No, but Texas's offense is awesome, and the O's were three and three against them this year. Like that's a team that's had some success against the Orioles. Nobody scares me more than the Astros. I mean, nothing scares me more than Kyle Tucker and Jordan Alvarez back to back in the order. I mean, and that's after you face Altuve and Bregman. It's a ridiculous order. They've now got Michael Brantley back, who's just the most annoying hitter to face yeah. in the world. He's gonna slap a single the other way. You just know it. And Jose Bregman starts to swing the bat back. That team scares me like nothing else. I had a friend talk to me about how maybe it would have been nice to have Houston in Tampa because they know one of them would have knocked out the other and they're probably your biggest two competitors. But I think a perfect case scenario is you get Tampa, you know enough to beat them, and somebody beats Houston on the other side. Minnesota just gets on a crazy pitching run or the Blue Jays start to hit because if you can see Toronto or Minnesota in the ALCS, I think the O's can go to the World Series. You have probably been the biggest person up on Kyle Bradish, other than maybe ourselves, I don't know. Well, you're right in line with us, but uh, outside of a line drive off his foot in the beginning of the season and then a bad start against Boston, he's been pretty impeccable. I think, you know, that line drive might have cost him like a top two or three spot in the Cy Young this year. Just talk about Kyle Bradish and how awesome he's been. Yeah, I mean, you know, from that trade, it stunk to see the Dylan Bundy era end like that. I mean, I was at the game when he debuted at the end of 2012, when they just kind of brought him up with the expanded rosters. They were like, this great prospect. He's never gonna be in our playoff roster, but look at this. <laughs> then he gets Tommy John, he has multiple injuries. And when he was good in you know, 2016, 17, like he was really good. And they parlayed that into getting a couple of pitchers in that deal. And you know, at this point, you, know, you never know what's gonna happen with the two guys who got TJ, but Bradish has been incredible, and watching him some in the minor leagues and knowing the stuff, and I, I'm sure some of you out there like love Eno Saris, like one of the best baseball analysts there are, like his stuff plus model has always been on Bradish and his breaking balls. And I've been just, I mean, this is probably the point I talked about the most on a daily podcast all of last season was Kyle Bradish, throw more sliders than you throw any yes. more pitch. His fastball, his four-seam fastball, it's bad. It's just yeah. bad. Yeah. He picked up a sinker, which was a good first start, but I just kept saying, if he can just throw the slider as his number one pitch, if he can turn into Lance McCullers without the Tommy John, like this is gonna be a special, special pitcher. And that's where we got to, and we got to Brad. I mean, every start, the slider's the number one pitch. It's 30, 40% of the time, every time he throws it. And that plus a hammer curveball are two of the best pitches in baseball. And you look at him and you say, if he ever wants to get to like the next level, he'll probably have to find a fastball and a four-seamer that's gonna get swings and misses. He doesn't have that right now. But the sinker's good enough and the stuff is good enough where he's gonna go out there game one, and you know, it is nice that the O's get to rest and another team has to play a wild card series. You're not gonna see the number one starter in game one, but whoever he goes up against, the Orioles are going to have the better starting pitcher in game one of the ALDS. And even how good this team has been this year, that's kind of hard to fathom, but, but that's the case with how good he's been. 
Any concern with the bullpen going to the playoffs? You know, that's a position, you know, we always, I think, in our chat, I know personally, it's like, why give big money to a reliever, right? They're, they're so volatile of a position. But every year at the trade deadline, teams overpay for even, you know, mid-tier relievers, right? Because of how important that bullpen is come the postseason, especially come the World Series. Any concern with Batista not coming back until probably 2025, unfortunately? Any concern going into this postseason? You saw the debate unfold about Fuji there for a little bit. Any concern from you about the bullpen heading into this playoff series? Yes, and I think because the bullpen does not miss enough bats to be considered one of the best in the postseason. In the postseason, you're going to be used differently than in the regular season. We saw that Thursday night when the Orioles went for the division win. Brandon Hyde managed that thing a little differently than he has all year. You know, he pulled Kramer earlier than he would have in any other game. He went to D.L. Hall in that spot. He went to Cano not in the ninth inning. And he went to Tyler Wells when he did because he wanted Cano to face the top of the order, get the ground ball outs, go to Tyler Wells. Now, I think Tyler Wells can miss some bats, so that could be helpful for the Orioles. But Felix Bautista had like a 50% strikeout rate, essentially. Like, that is absurd, and that is why the Orioles always used him in the extra innings. Now, there's no zombie runner in the playoffs, so that's going to help. You don't want that runner on second where you have to miss a bat. But there's going to be times where Inyer Cano comes in with first and third, one out in the eighth. There's going to be times when CNL Perez comes in first and second, nobody out in the seventh inning. You need a strikeout sometimes. And yes, a double play can be better in those spots, but sometimes with a runner on third, you need a strikeout. And the Orioles have missed a lot more bats over the last couple of weeks, their bullpen, when it's finally gotten rest after the 17 days in a row. But you think about who they're relying on. Cano's a ground ball pitcher. Perez is a ground ball pitcher. I think Dan Coulomb is more of a bat misser. Right now, in Tyler Wells' current state, he's really been a fly ball pitcher for most of his career, but he's kind of been a ground ball pitcher out of the bullpen since he came back. You don't really have a strikeout guy. The guy who misses bats the most is Fuji, which is why I think they might put him on the playoff roster. Just because you know if you can harness it one time, it's going to be better than maybe anything else you have. And if you can just have him be the last pitcher, I mean, maybe. But that's one thing that concerns me is the Orioles could feel a fate that they felt in the 2014 ALCS, which is just being battered to death. Because without Felix, they don't have a reliever who comes in and is hunting strikeouts every single time. If Fuji comes in a high leverage spot in the playoffs, the floor of my house is going to be worn out from me pacing around so until he's off the mound. Yeah. Now, with that said, it feels like you're going to get through the postseason. You got to have a couple of guys who just have a huge spike in production. It, who do you see maybe being someone that isn't an obvious producer that ends up coming up big in these five, seven game series? Well, he's an obvious producer, but Anthony Santander is the king of the heater. And so if he can get on a playoff heater, we're going to be golden in the middle of the order. Other than that, I mean, it would be awesome. And this is a guy who, you know, just a short time ago, you would say, oh, he's one of the main producers. But I mentioned it before. I think the Orioles are going to need something from Cedric Mullins in a playoff series to get through a playoff series. I think they're going to need something from Mullins, whether it's a big home run, a key double. He's going to give it to you defensively, maybe get on, steal a base, score a hard hit single. Like, they're going to need something from Cedric Mullins because he's probably going to hit seventh or eighth at this point. And if they face a left-hander, like, he may start, he may not. If he does, he might hit eighth or ninth in that order if they face a left-hander. I think they're going to need some big production from him. You know, it's funny because the O's are so well-balanced in the order. There's not a lot of guys who are super, super unsung at this point. Like, you can expect a hit from any of them. But I think, like, a Santander heater and then Mullins finally starting to hit from back from that second injury would be big. ALDS MVP. 
ALDS MVP, I'm going to give it to Kyle Bradish because I think he makes two starts, games one and game five, because I think we'll play the Rays and they are not going to go down easy, and I think he shoves both times and gets that award. I like it because I have tickets to game five, so that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know, I just have one more question, and from just as a personal, as a fan of this team, I mean, you do a daily podcast for a couple of years now, and so you, you've had some brutal stretches of doing those daily podcasts. This year, I imagine, has been a lot more fun, but you're also one of the bigger Orioles fans that I know, and I'm sure I don't even understand how big of an Orioles fan you are. Just ask my fiance. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what has this season meant to you personally as an Orioles fan? Like, not even the podcast, but just as an Orioles fan, speak for many Orioles fans and what the season has meant for you. Yeah, so I had uh, someone comment on the podcast the other day when I revealed that while I was alive when Cal Ripken was playing, I have no memory of Cal Ripken Jr. Because I was four or five years old when he retired. And so all I knew of Orioles baseball, I was, I had never been alive for a winning season until 2012. So all I knew of Orioles baseball was like, let's go to the park for the opposite team. Like my granddad had tickets through his company, we'd get to go three or four times a year. I'm like, the Cardinals are coming. Let's go see Albert Pulos. We never get to see Albert Pulos. They're like, the Rockies are coming to Camden Yards. Let's go see Todd Helton. We never see Todd Helton. That's how we went to Orioles games. And seeing the Buck era was awesome. Like, that probably honestly invoked more emotion out of me than this has just because I had never seen a winning team. Like, not even a team that sniffed 75 wins had I seen in my life. This team is different because it feels more like the beginning of something even more sustainable. I mean, there was always that thought of the Orioles who relied exclusively on the home run ball, had no starting pitching, and a volatile bullpen to get through those five years with Buck. This seems a lot more sustainable, and this feels like something that could, barring John Angelos, could turn into like a long dynasty, which is very different from probably what I felt, even though they you know, were locking up Adam Jones and locking up J.J. Hardy and locking up guys like that. This feels a lot different, and honestly, to see a team like I've never seen a team win 100 games, I've only seen a team win a division once, um, and to see a team that is so young, and you know, Danielle and, and Andy talked about it, like the, the clubhouse chemistry, something I've heard from people that you know, know people around Mike Elias is that for a guy that comes from the Astros ilk, and comes from the, you know, and works with Sig Dell and like the numbers and everything are what matter the most, he generally cares about clubhouse culture a little bit more than some of the other GMs who have come from that tree. And that seems to be building out with this Orioles team, is that they do kind of like each other. Was there a better pitcher out there than Kyle Gibson for 10 million? Maybe. But he seems to be like the dad, you know, the Jordan Lyles dad style guy coming in. And so that's invoked more of like a, an emotional connection to the team as well. And it's just been incredible. And living in the city too, like living down the street, like after winning the division, just like walking through Fed Hill back to the apartment, like it's Orioles jerseys everywhere. On a Sunday, on that Rays game Sunday, going outside, like yeah, everybody's wearing Ravens gear, but you would never see Orioles gear out by Mothers on a Sunday until now. And that's just like very different and has been awesome to see. How much of that clubhouse chemistry, you know, that significance that Michael I seems to be putting into building the team. How much of that do you think is the reason for the overachieving in 2022 and, and now 2023? I think a solid part of it. I think for, for certain players, you know, for Ryan O'Hearn, it's probably been nice to be in a better culture 
I mean, the, the Royals seem like a disaster, and he comes to the Orioles, and they seem to have things put together. That's been nice to see. Um, Kyle Gibson and, and Cole Irvin and those guys being able to, to lead these Orioles has certainly been nice. And then the big thing they touched on is, like, these guys have played together throughout the minor leagues. They know each other. They're all friends with each other. They build Legos with each other. Like, they... It's going to help you perform. Like, you know, I, in my day job, genuinely like my coworkers, and it probably helps my job performance. And for the people in my office that I don't like, like, if I'm working with them that day, like, I'm probably going to do a worse job. So, I mean, I know baseball is very different than, like, the 9-to-5 world, but it probably translates there, too. And I think they've got the right balance of veterans with young studs. And Brandon Hyde's just been unbelievable for this organization. I think it all comes yeah. together. Now, you're not going to win 100 games off vibes, but you can win 83 games after winning 50 games off of some more vibes, and then you kind of translate it to what happened this year. Oh, go ahead. I'll just say... Covering the Orioles should be your full-time job. So maybe one day. <laughs> so we'll wrap here. Um, you just predicted what's going to happen in the ALDS. What happens the rest of the way? Um, I think this Orioles team can get to the World Series. Like I really do. I think it would be nice to have a break and have Houston get knocked out. That would be really nice. That's a team that scares me a lot. I'm going to not predict they win the World Series because the Braves and the Dodgers are so good and have been there. And you also have the Phillies who were there last year. And there's, I think there's more talent in the National League than there is in the American League, so you just never know what's going to happen there. But I think Daniel made a good point about the way this team plays. It's like either going to be you get dropped in four games in the ALDS or like you're making a deep run to the yeah. World Series and competing. Like It feels like this team, they just got a couple of playoff wins under them. I think game one of the ALDS might determine like the future of this entire team. They can go out there in front of a sold-out crowd. Kyle Bradish gives you seven innings of one-run ball, and you can beat the Rays and the Rangers in game one. I think they're just going to be off because they're like, wow, we can do this. We've never done this before. We won a playoff game, and they know how talented they are. They know how many games they've won this year. My prediction is a loss of the World Series, which is going to be crushing the moment it happens, and about 24 hours later is going to be unbelievable to think back to it, if that ends up being the case this year. Well, Connor, thank you for joining us tonight. You can check out his work at Locked On Orioles Daily Podcast. Connor Newcomb, thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. Coming back. Always good to have Connor on the show, and now we're going to go to our final guest, another regular of On the Birds. He is with the Baltimore Banner, John Mioli. John, come on up. So, John, I do have a little bit of an announcement here before we start. Tonight's a record breaker. Eight appearances. You have passed Stephen Loftus for all-time guest appearances and on the birds. That balloon over there was actually supposed to drop when you took the stage, but somehow it flew over there. Uh, so we don't have that for you, unfortunately. But. Um, how does this feel to win such a cherished award in Orioles' uh, social media media landscape? Gosh, uh, I just want to thank my wife uh, <laughs> for, for all the time she has put our daughter to bed uh, to let me come on this podcast. I want to thank, uh, gosh, I want to thank you guys. I want to thank you know, Andy and Danielle for just being here and Connor. I want to thank all everyone. Gosh, I'm so excited. But mostly, she's not going to listen to this, but thank you so much to my wife. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I feel like I should be doing the same thing right now. <laughs> She's got two straight days with two toddlers at home. Um, but I think you've done an excellent job during this rebuild of your own personal blog before joining the banner, um, especially kind of highlighting the player development side of things and highlighting kind of what matters, what performances matter, what statistics matter. Um, are you surprised 
though, that we're sitting here doing this in October 2023 and talking about the first place Baltimore Orioles and not doing this you know, next year or even in 2025? Yeah, I mean, it, it would be crazy to say no. Um, you know, even though this team had a winning record last year, it would be insane to think that they would just rip off 100 wins and win the division and be in a position where, like, everyone who's come up here can reasonably talk about them being a team that can go to the World Series. But when you peel back how that happened and how they got to this point, that's the part that's not surprising. Um, talking to people, not necessarily from the Orioles, but more and more you hear from people on in, in other organizations that work with other teams, and the Orioles are just kind of becoming a model for, for how teams hire, teams develop, how teams you know build a culture and an environment of collaboration. I think that is something that you can't replicate and you can't just create overnight. This took a long time. Um, it could have taken longer. I don't think it could have happened any faster, but it could have taken a lot longer. And I think you, know, you guys have talked about a couple guys who have come from other places and gotten fixed. And I was talking to uh, an analyst for a story I was doing, Lance Brodzowski, I think his name is. And he was basically saying, like, there's probably someone in every organization in, in baseball who, if they got their hands on Jacob Webb, would, would have him doing what he's doing. But there's 25, 26 organizations that would not let that person have a say. Um, and the Orioles let those people who have those opinions have a say. And there's no friction. There's not a lot of like pushback on a lot of these things. They just do what they believe will work and let that thesis play out. And, and I think you're seeing the results now. Now, clearly they've maximized their playoff odds this year, but uh, how are they going to maximize their playoff success uh, in this first season? Uh, I'm in the same camp as everyone else who's spoken. I think the playoffs are either going to last like four days or four weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's a huge in between. Um, but I think that I think this is a team that will benefit from having a lot of guys who have carried them offensively over a course of a season. You know, it's not going to be a situation you think back. You know, there's no reason to envision like the bad Orioles teams being in the playoffs. But like. If the 2021 Orioles, like if the first three guys didn't get on base, like they weren't scoring for another two innings because there was no one else to do that. Um, I think they're going to be really fortunate to have um, a lot of different candidates who can just win them a game offensively by, you know, ripping off three hits and yeah. driving in three runs. And like, it might not be the person you think it is, but there's a person who can do that. And I think that, I think that this is going to be an occasion, you know, I'm seeing in a lot of the playoff previews already, um, I think it's going to be an occasion for a lot of people to like check their priors on the Orioles like pitching staff and the rotation you know even even you know even people locally who follow the team are still like you, you still see this stuff about like oh like where's the frontline starter are they going to get a starting pitcher this offseason like who are they going to get and for what that's better than than what they have and like this is an opportunity for those guys to prove that and make it seem like it's a real thing and I, and I think if this team wins in the playoffs it's going to be because those starters are those kind of starters yeah. We've talked a lot about Kyle Bradis tonight, but right behind him in the postseason rotation, you're probably going to have Grayson Rodriguez, who overcame, really for the first time in his career, outside of that injury last year, meaningful adversity, struggling in the major leagues, having to go back to AAA, having to come back up, and really from about the middle of July on, one of the best pitchers in the American League. How much of an X factor could he be in playoffs? I think it's going to be huge, you know. As, as you guys have been talking about Kyle Bradish and his success, you know, there's not those games where 
you just know that like Kyle Bradish hasn't. Like he has games where he goes seven innings and like the first three you're like, oh boy, this yeah. is not that <laughs> night. And then he's pitching in the sixth and seventh. It's like, cool. You know, I feel like the game, his, his last full start was kind of like that. He didn't really have it. All of a sudden it's the seventh inning and like, you're good. Yeah. Um, and then he pitched into the eighth. Grayson Rodriguez has those starts where you just know that he is, he is locked in and he is going for it and he's going to do it. And I think that's going to be so, so valuable. I don't want to step on, I don't want to step on, you know, any other possible questions. Like Grayson Rodriguez's playoff game is probably going to make or break the series. But like you're talking about like an X factor in that group, like mine would be DL Hall. Like I've told Andy and Danielle, I don't know if I should say it into a microphone, but like he's going to, he's going to win them three playoff games and lose them one. And like, that's probably a good ratio for somebody yeah. with that kind of arm talent. And for I think sure. anybody would probably take that. He's going to get used so much in these playoffs. Um, and and I think that's going to be the outcome. <laughs> Three wins and one loss. What what exactly clicked for him, in your opinions? Because I think it, last time you were on, I don't know if it was on on the show or off air conversation, but we talked about Rodriguez's development this year was crucial. You, you look at the history of Orioles and pitching development and – We've been big proponents of a lot of the pitching prospects in this organization. We've been laughed at. So we've people coming after us all the time about these pitching prospects. You guys are homers. You guys are this. You guys are that. And we've stuck by some of these guys in particular. But Grayson Rodriguez was the top pitching prospect in all of baseball. And looking at the Orioles' history and looking at what we are hoping the future is going to be in Baltimore, a lot was riding on his success this year. You guys mentioned down the stretch he's one of the more dominant starters on this team. What do you think clicked for him that separated him? I think at some point in the last 18 months, uh, before he, you know, I guess it would have been like throughout 2022 and into the early part of 2023, he just got away from like what got him to that point. You know, I remember conversations with people in Bowie at the end of 2021, it would have been that he was adding a cutter and then that was a pitch, you know, if not, he was like a three, four, five percent of the time pitch and it's a good pitch, but not his. It's not his out pitch. You know, his yeah. changeup is a fantastic changeup. His slider is really, really good. He can land his curveball. He has a, you know, a really good fastball when he locates it. And at some point, he just got away from being the pitcher that got him to that point. I don't know why. I don't know how that happens. I know the Orioles really, really like the cutter as a pitch. Um, you see that at every level of the minors, guys are just adding cutters left and right, and it's going great for him. So who's going to argue with it? But it wasn't going great for Grayson Rodriguez. Um, I think getting him back to Norfolk and getting him back with Justin Ramsey and getting him, you know, you call it humble pie. It's not like he needed to be humble, but he needed to just kind of like realize like that didn't work. Like what is going to work? And I think that's something every single one of these Orioles pitchers in the rotation that we're talking about, like Bradish, Rodriguez, and Kramer, DL Hall to some extent, like they have that taste and then they go back to Norfolk and they say, all right, what's going to work? Like I just did this. What's going to work? And to their credit, the organization's credit, every single one of them has come back and done it and, and been better and learned from that. I think the Orioles finished top 10 in ERA in the major leagues this year. And uh, I don't know, that's to be applauded. Vivek pointed that out in our WhatsApp group. So uh, shout out to that. <laughs> but uh, back to DL Hall for a second. You know, what other organization is gonna, it was his idea, right? To go switch to relief. At least that's the story. and and build up like what other organization like you were saying before is going to let the player have their own input like that and and just follow their gut is that unusual yeah it, it felt very unusual i was down in norfolk when he 
got sent down. I was scheduled to talk to him like the next day and Andy was in Chicago or wherever it was and they said that, you know, he was going down and I just talked to Justin Ramsey like the day before about him and, and it was explained to me, you know, if you have a dollar of like work in a given week and you're trying to strengthen yourself and trying to get better but you're using 60 cents of that dollar to pitch in a game, the 40 cents that's yeah, remaining does not go very far. Yeah. And for them to let him do that, you know, I'm sure that that was not like, I believe that he wanted to just get back and like not like mess around anymore, but I believe that that is probably not something that anyone wants to do. Just go to Sarasota yeah. when you're playing on a really good like AAA team with a chance to be one call away or, you know, could be in the big leagues. Like that's, that's not an easy thing to do, but since he's been in the big leagues, he's throwing strikes. He's doing like whatever worked out has worked. Silly thing to say. Choo choo. <laughs> this was kind of the, the the ideal when he went down, when he was still building himself up. Because you look at those starts when he was kind of getting himself back in Norfolk and the velocity wasn't there. He was still striking guys out. He had all the secondary pitches. He was throwing strikes. And they were thinking, like, if this is 96 and he's still throwing four pitches for strikes, then we have something. And it's just another instance of it. If this works, it's going to go well. Let's see if it works, and like, let's give it time to work. And they did it, and now he's going to be, you know, a weapon in the playoffs. Do they give him another chance to start after uh, off-season spring training, or do you think this is kind of the role moving forward? I think they do. Um, I don't. I, I've never, you know, I, I haven't pitched baseball in going on like twenty-something years, so I don't know how hard it is to go from like being a starter to being a reliever after spring training. But I feel like you always hear everyone in that position is yeah we're gonna build him up and we're gonna see what happens and like that's what's gonna happen with him and if he's throwing strikes in spring training why not there's they're not going to move him into the bullpen yeah. just because they need to there's gonna be other guys who, who can fill those roles and there's not gonna be a lot of guys who are ready to be starters or starting depth that are in this rotation right now we're uh, you know you've had a chance to really cover this organization going back to the Duquette show wall for years and then the rebuild and now the culmination of it has it ever looked like the Orioles were going to have a window like they have now to compete? Like, like in that time, or, or yeah, just in that time. It, it was not like this. Yeah. Um, it was. It did not feel like this. I, I, I appreciated how they got what they achieved done at that point, but it was not sustainable. It was not anything that you know. There was no plan to do what they're doing right now. I think the plan was to keep just trying to win on the margins and and hope that the talent that was there would, would stay uh, you know, would stay in Baltimore and would help them do all the things they're doing. And I don't think that was a realistic expectation. I think that the idea that you know, we're talking about five years. This was not like a fast process, but it was an effective process. Um, and to have gotten to this point is really a testament to I, I feel like a broken record, but like they just stuck to a plan and it wasn't fun. Like no one's saying anything that happened in like 2019 or 2020 or 2021 was a good time, but like this this kind of feels like a good time. So if this is what it takes, um, there are other ways to go about it, but this way was not ultimately like the wrong way. Were you, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're kind of staying like prospect focus here with you, you're a prospect guy. Uh, 
Were you surprised that Jordan Westberg was the guy that stuck for 60 plus games on the Major League roster and really didn't seem to have a big adjustment period at the Major League level? Were you surprised it was him? Yes and no. Uh, you, we're at the point now, and I'm sure you guys can figure, have figured this out yourselves, that like the Orioles are just going to tell you what they think of a guy by based on how they yeah. how much they play him. Um, and Jordan Westberg kept getting opportunities. He wasn't playing every day, but he was playing pretty consistently. And, you know, the offense, I feel like it's tailed off a little lately, but he is, you know, a true middle infielder. He can play all those positions. He can do those things that Brandon Hyde's going to value. And it's, you know, when you, when you talk about Brandon Hyde that way, it's almost like you're talking about, like, Buck Showalter, like, you know, a young player's got to do this and that and the other thing. And, like, yeah, that's, like, the baseline. But but for him to be able to do it, I think, has been really, really helpful. It's, it was fascinating to... You know, right before he called up, I was down in the talking to him about how he was basically preparing for this moment. I talked to him again recently about how he, you know, a lot of that helped, but like you can't know what you're getting into and what the challenges are until you're here and how different that role is going to be. You know, going from a guy who's hitting third to a guy who's laying down bunts, you know, late in innings because that's just what's asked of you. And that's just as much of a challenge as facing major league pitching. And I think that. It says a lot about him that he's able to come through that and kind of stuck it the way that he did. His defense at second base has been pretty spectacular, probably better than even we expected. I think his outs above average is like one of the best on the team, even though he's played like a third of the season. That probably played a big part in him uh, staying in the lineup, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that, I think there's probably a real comfort in having him in there. Um, there's a little bit of redundancy now, like on the in the infield with all these right-handed, you know, guys who can play all these positions. But they made a choice to have him be the guy who got to be here. You know, Joey Ortiz got those looks early, um, and Jordan Westberg is the guy who got the main look. And I think that says something about what they think of him. We haven't seen much of Heston Kirsch dad, and as Andy and Danielle said, Kirsch dad probably doesn't make the major or the playoff roster for obvious reasons, but what have you seen from him and his limited time in the major leagues that get you excited for his potential role in 2024? It's a lot of what he's done in, in the minors. Um, you know, he, there's power to all fields. Um, as I was kind of trying to dig into what was causing him to break out this year, you know, talking to the hitting coaches down in Bowie and Norfolk and talking to people around there, you know, it's not like he has like a hot zone. Like he has multiple zones where he, you know, he knows what, he determines what a pitcher's gonna try to do to him. And he says, okay, if it's here, I'm gonna hit it this way and it's gonna be hard in the air. And if it's over on this side, I'm gonna hit it the other way and it's gonna be hard in the air. And that's a challenging life to live as a big league hitter when you know that, you know, the caliber of pitchers that you're facing are so good. Um, you're kind of seeing, you're kind of seeing what that looks like in the early stages. You know, his power numbers are there. He's hitting the ball. Uh, I think he's got home runs to all fields at this point. I believe he walked for the first time yesterday. Um, so that's one. Yeah, he's, not not, he's not going to walk a lot. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays. Um, we've seen guys, um, you know, once they've gotten the majors with the Orioles, you know, and Anthony Santander, uh, Ryan Mountcastle, like developed that skill over time, but those guys had a lot of time to learn how to hit major league pitching before they started developing that skill. It'll be interesting to see how they kind of view that learning curve and whether they're interested in participating in it, but he is a player who, you know, he's getting the chances, and, and I think that says plenty about, about what they think about. We'll wrap up here. What's gonna happen in the playoffs? I think that the Orioles are going to pitch 
really, really well, and I think they're going to play a lot of close, low-scoring games, and I'm not sure how that part's going to go, but I think the surprising part of these playoffs is that they're going to pitch really well, and I think that, you know, you've seen, you've seen plenty of times against good teams that this team has not scored as many runs as they do against, you know, some, like, 4A pitcher that somebody's running out there. They could beat the bad ones with the best of them offensively. I don't, you know, I don't think they're that says anything bad about them. I just think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a challenge. I think it's going to be a lot of close games and I think it's going to come down to how they pitch and that's not to say like giving up like two runs or five runs. That might be like the difference of like two and three runs and I'm, I'm not giving any kind of like real prediction because I don't really have one but I think that I think that they're going to pitch really well and people are going to be surprised by that and they might be surprised if they do pitch well that it might not result in them advancing. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and thank you for really bringing that holistic perspective of the organization and your coverage from the minor leagues up to the major leagues. We enjoy your work here, and uh, look forward to your writing in the playoffs. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. John, the only in the Baltimore banner. Now, uh, we will take a moment here, first of all, to thank the staff at Sector Spot Brewing, especially Dennis, Audrey, and Justin back there for helping to make this happen. Uh, and we appreciate all of you coming out tonight. This has been a fun season. I'm glad we had the opportunity to wrap it up tonight and to preview the postseason. A quick programming note, for the month of October, we're gonna be changing our format a little bit. What we're gonna do is we're gonna bring you shorter but more frequent episodes while the Orioles are in the playoffs. Our first show will be Friday night to preview the division series. And then after that, we will be on every off day during the series. So from there would be Monday and then possibly Thursday. Stay tuned to our social media at BSL and the Birds on X, Twitter, whatever it's called now. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. And while you're browsing around the internet, check out BaltimoreSportsLife.com for all the latest coverage on the Orioles, Ravens, college sports, and more. Now we'll wrap up real quick with our predictions. I'm going to start with Bob. Bob, you're the only one of the three of us that had the Orioles going to the World Series preseason. You had them losing to the San Diego Padres. The good news, you can wipe the slate clean in the National League. So what happens here? Uh, we win ALDS in four, ALCS in six, and we beat the Dodgers in seven in the World Series to win uh, the 2023 World Series. Change my answer, how do I follow that up? Um, I think Texas takes uh, the wild card, and I think the bats feel cold when they face the Orioles pitching. Like John said, the pitching is going to stand out for this organization. Uh, so I think we take that series against Texas. The next series is going to be tough, but you know what? I'm four beers deep now, uh, and I'm going to say we take that series, and we take down the Braves in seven games. So the two of you made me go last when I was going to say the Orioles were going to lose to the Astros at six in the ALCS. Now, now I gotta, now I gotta switch it up. You know what? The Orioles are going to beat the Brewers in five in the World Series. How about that? Milwaukee's pitching staff provides a way to the World Series. They will come crashing down against the Orioles. The Orioles will clinch out in Miller Park, which, as far as places clinch go, eh, but they get the World Series. Yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> well, for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Birds.
That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more. 